Welcome to the Woolwork Podcast. Encouraging a love for local wool, wherever your local is, and celebrating the value and skill in woolwork everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Woolwork Podcast. This is episode 121 and it's November already. How how on earth has that happened? It's just ridiculous. It feels like it was no time at all that it was the end of summer and all now we're in November. It's just ridiculous. I hope you are in for the duration. Uh, there is a lot to get through this episode. I have an interview with uh, the magnificent Esther Rutter, author of This Golden Fleece, A Journey Through Britain's Knitted History. I have news of the Tin Can Knits Along that we're going to be starting on the 1st of December, which is soon, maybe now, um, as you're listening to this. Um, and I also have uh, a recording of a talk with Alice Underwood, who you may know as co-founder of Sheepfold, a wonderful online wool retailer, uh, also a member of the Wool Clip. And you will have seen Alice with Sheepfold, uh, doubtlessly, if you've been to any of the wool festivals, yarn shows um, around the UK. Alice uh, works with the Rare Breeds Survival Trust, um, where she's based in Cumbria. And uh, she was at Day at Fine Fettle Fibres back in October. And she talked about um, the role of the Rare Breeds Survival Trust. And I'm going to bring you that presentation uh, today as well. Do I have any notes for this section, guys? <laughs> I'm without the aid of a safety net, um, so... This might be a bit rambly, uh, but um, let's give it a go. Uh, first up, I want to uh, mention that this is your final call for getting your wool exploration for Welsh Mountain uh, up on the Google form. Now, if you're taking part in wool exploration with any of the breeds in the Welsh Mountain group, do head over to the Woolwork Ravelry group where you'll find the link for our Google form at uh, the top of the Welsh Mountain group page. Um, the deadline is, you know, loosely, not too strictly, the 30th of November, uh, but I... Um, we'd like this to be, for anyone who's trying to finish up, I'd like this to be your your final call, your final klaxon, um, because I want to start putting together the, the next episode with our Welsh uh, mountain exploration. Um, I did promise that I would tell you what the breeds for... 2020 are going to be. Um, I will do a blog post about this or a forum post about this at some point um, in the next uh, month, but we could talk a little bit about it now. I have had a few questions about wool exploration going forward now that the podcast is not called Knit British anymore. Um, wool exploration started in 2018 although it has its roots in the breed swatch along from 2015 it's a way it was a way for us to explore breed wool together and in 2018 we looked at a breed every month which was a lot uh, and this year we've gone forward again um, with slightly fewer breeds and in 2020 we're going to go forward with slightly fewer breeds as well but the focus is on uh, breeds which 
are not necessarily British, but are found um, in the UK as well as other places, as we have seen in previous years. We find breeds in Australia, New Zealand, North America um, and Europe as well. So we're going to stick with that. So as I say, in 2020, we're, we're going to continue um, with slightly fewer breeds. We're going to be looking at four I might add a fifth. I'm, I, I'm making it slightly less so that there's more time to participate. There's time for folks to catch up if they um, want to catch up with some of the earlier breeds that we've looked at. But it, it helps um, to have slightly fewer to work in with um, things like my pod break and, and things like that. So in 2020, we will be looking at Hebridean Zvartblis. Whiteface Woodland and Shropshire. So those are the four. As I say, I may add a fifth. Um, I don't have a um, timetable schedule, um, but I think we'll do them in that order, seeing as I've read them out in that order. Um, so feel free to seek out some Hebridean. Zvartbull. 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 You know I'm going to struggle saying that. Whiteface Woodland, which will be a really interesting one, I think. And some Shropshire, which I'm not sure how easy will be to find in many commercial yarns. I know that there's lots of fibre out there. Um, so uh, maybe the same with Whiteface Woodland as well. So um, I hope that that has piqued your interest. I'm excited for this one. So I will try and endeavour to to get a pod, a blog or a or a forum post in the Woolwork, um, Ravelry group about the twenty twenty breeds. And as I say, I've been thinking ahead to twenty twenty one as well. Um, but um, let's just see how we get on with those four. And I want to just also say thank you very much for, um, your enthusiasm for wool exploration and how valuable your work is and that knowledge that we're gaining together and that we're putting out on the podcast um it's it's hugely valuable we are we really are creating a, a, a base of knowledge and we are really are creating voca new vocabularies and language around different wool different breeds um so thank you so much for um, all of the work that you do on that it's you know does blow me away every single time that we um look at a different breed I had the absolute pleasure of having Esther Rutter, uh, author of This Golden Fleece, around uh, to Woolwork HQ uh, the other week. And we had a cup of tea and uh, a chat about this incredible journey that she's been on over the last couple of years, really being bitten by this challenge to seek out the traditions of uh, the textile and knitted history of the British Isles and also go on a very personal journey um, throughout that by creating 13 pieces to really, really live and breathe that history and that tradition. I spent a very, very happy hour or so in uh, Esther's company, which um, has become this I don't know, 45 minute interview um, where we talk about that journey that she was on and talk about the magic 
um, that is wool and uh, creating textiles and the space that occupies in our being and the um, effect that that's had on the British landscape and um, even our language. Um, I think this would be a very opportune moment to grab a whip, grab a drink and settle in and listen to Esther and I talk about her incredible book, This Golden Fleece. Welcome to the Wool Work Podcast. And uh, do apologise if I say Knit British at any point. I'm still not used to saying Wool Work. Well, it's lovely to be on <laughs> Wool Work, and I heartily approve of the rebrand. Oh, it's thank a great you. name. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So the first thing that I wanted to really ask you about was um, that the book, The Golden Fleece, it's very much a personal journey as well as this incredible history. So I just wondered if you can explain how you decided to embark on this journey and, and how it came to you. Was it, was it like, did it spring forward fully formed or was it more organic and did it, did it bubble? Um, that's an interesting question. I think in a way it's probably been bubbling since I was about seven because that was when I learned to knit. Uh, and in fact, slightly earlier than that, when I was five, um, my family moved to the sheep farm and we weren't farmers. We didn't come from that background at all. And it was pure chance that we ended up there. And yet, you know, within a few weeks of being there, I was out helping feed the sheep <laughs> and I just loved it. And mm-hmm. I know our domestic situation was quite rocky at the time. And I found, you know, being outside and being with the sheep was brilliant. It was, you know, that you have to kind of just deal with here and now. And yeah, it was brilliant for a kid. Um, and then there was all the, oh, you know, all the sheep's, what well, they called hentilaggots everywhere. And so I liked to, to pick them up and take them into my mum to spin because she's a spinner and weaver. Uh, and then it was this sort of mad, like literally the, like, the magic of a fairy tale watching her do it. Uh, and yeah, and so I really wanted to do it. But then the, the sp- I found the spinning too hard. The, the loom was off limits. Definitely off limits. Um, but my best friend's mum, she was a knitter and she made my friend all these gorgeous uh, items and clothes and things. And so, yeah, that was it. And then, you know, I knitted on and off all the way through my childhood. Um, I kind of stopped when I got to being a teenager didn't really knit at all when I was at uni little bits here and there you know Mm -hmm. for friends and things but not you know compulsively and then I moved to Ayrshire um when I was in my early 20s and it was long dark nights and I thought I know what to do to feel long dark nights in Ayrshire (laughs) (laughs) and so but anyway so that got me back into knitting and that got me experimenting with um historic patterns and I used the V&A archive uh, to do gloves and hats in the Mm -hmm. yeah really good resource you know I did various jobs all to do with literary heritage and then we moved to Fife three years ago with my husband's work. He got a job at the University of St Andrews. And so I did as well. I managed to, to get one in the fundraising department and I just hated it. Wildly unsuited <laughs> to the work of, of getting money out of people. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't really my thing. And I just came home from work every day furiously knitted to try and <laughs> knit myself into a, you know, a, a good frame of mind. And it wasn't, it wasn't enough. And then my mum had gave me this amazing present um, of Jimson and Smith yarn. I thought, well, I've got to make something really special from this. You know, mm-hmm. this is really interesting uh, yarn. And then I, I did have a, the awareness of a couple of the sort of big traditions, like the um, the Dale's gloves, stranded colour work, because I'd seen them in the museum that I used to work in in Grasmere at the Wordsworth Trust. So I knew that there was a story behind them there. And then I knew about Gansies because I'm I'm from Suffolk and my dad has memories of uh, of Gansies being worn and. Um, the Port of Lowestoft and of women um, from Scotland coming down and knitting mm. there as well. So again, I had these sort of 
awareness that there were stories to tell. And actually it started off because I wanted to read this book, really. <laughs> I wanted a history and I wanted something that took me on that journey and that told me about all these different places. And there's obviously Richard Rutt's history of handwriting, yeah. but it was out of print. Uh, and it is quite technical, um, yeah. and it, it wasn't a book that, um, whilst I found it very interesting, it wasn't something that I was reading as a sort of treat, you know, I wasn't like, oh, great, yeah. I can't wait to get back to it, because it didn't have a narrative. And so, you know, that's not a, a criticism, it's just a different sort of book. Uh, and so I thought, well, I reckon there are other knitters like me, who know a little bit, but want to know more, um, well, why don't I try and you know have a go at finding out the history of or a bit more about the history of these things and then I very quickly hit upon the idea of making the garments because that was such an obvious way of experiencing it I can't understand what it's like to do this as a way of life if I can't even have a go at making one thing let alone you know yeah. churning out um, haps or gansies or gloves or whatever it is and so that then happened quite quickly. So once mm. I kind of got this idea that I was going to make the things and I was going to tell the stories well then it kind of almost wrote itself because it, the obvious thing to do was over the course of a year because financially I could manage or we could manage on just my husband's salary for a year. So that was like, okay, that's a, I'll work within that. And there are 12 months in the year, so let's make 12 things and let's just go and find, have a look and see what, where I could go find those stories. And then, yeah, so I, I jacked in my job at the beginning of December and served out my notice. So by the 6th of January, I had an agent for the book. Do you want to say a little bit about okay. that? Because I was by Twitter, wasn't it? Was, it was, yeah. It was a, it's an amazing competition run by the writer development agency for the Highlands and Islands, which is called Expo North. And every year they do tweet your pitch. Mm -hmm. So 140 characters then. Um, <laughs> back in, so the, back good in days. the good old days. <laughs> uh, where you had to basically just put a, a book pitch out there um, in, in that kind of short form. And it's a day in January where they put together a panel of agents and publishers, um, editors, people who are interested and work in the trade. And they're just looking for good ideas. And if they like your idea, they'll send you a direct message to say, tell me more. And so I, I did a, well, the first tweet I did was very, I thought I was very, being very clever. I did it like, you know, like a dating kind of, oh, you know, I find like... your, your match in knitting, I think. And then nobody picked it up. And then I was like, <laughs> hang on, I think I just need to be a bit more straightforward. <laughs> so it was like, you know, um, <laughs> spending a year knitting my way from Shetland to the Channel Islands, exploring Britain's knitted history. And that was, that was it. Um, but my agent, Jenny Brown, who's fantastic, her sister is a oh, brilliant knitter. And she thought, I reckon my sister would like that book. And then... She, you know, That's it. that knowledge that there would be an audience for it mm -hmm. um, which is a really good thing about writing non-fiction is that unlike fiction where you often have to complete the entire work before you're able to get the financial reward yeah. for it um, non-fiction you can have a pitch in a couple of chapters so that's what happened I signed to Jenny she then um, helped me with getting the, the structure of the chapters and the first two chapters written um, before March because she then took those to the London Book Fair and uh, the result is here to that. <laughs> Thank you, Granta. For, for the purpose of audio, we're looking at the book. <laughs> I think that's incredible. I think that's just amazing. And that must have really helped things along it to have really that did. happen so quickly. Um, it, it was massively helpful, both financially um, and kind of confidence-wise. Mm. So obviously going to at least 12 different places yeah. over the whole of the British Isles, um, was expensive uh -huh. uh, and I you know not only was I not earning anything I was rapidly running out of savings spending it on even just the yarn and the materials yeah. um particularly for something like a Gansey you know it is a 
big outlay to have that amount, a whole entire kilo, two kilometers of of, of, wool. of wool that you have to work with, and and, spe and special needles because I needed. 40 centimeter steel double points and so it's like well i have to order those i feel that's a good, I feel that's a good pioneer publication on um finding resources around the british yeah. isles like yeah. just a little <laughs> well quite a lot of people have got in touch after the books come out to say you've inspired me to go on my own journey and that that is the best oh, there's that um, fish and air punch kind of feeling absolutely it? and i guess like that's the thing like there is there is so much out there um, but the resources for it aren't all in one place. Mm -hmm. So at least this is kind of a gateway drug, I guess, Yeah. Um, for people. It gives them enough of a sort of sense of what's possible or what might be there for them to go and then create their own journey. Yeah. And that was something I really did want to do with the book, was not present it as, like, this is a complete history of knitting in the British Isles. This is my journey through yeah. a landscape, through a history, with people. Again, that whole thing of there being a personal journey is the thing that keys in when you can knit or you can crochet, no matter what your experience is, you don't have to spend too long with that craft to feel a deep connection to the history of that craft and where it's come from. Even if you don't know so much about that history, mm. you feel like you're part of something that's a continuum. And I think having that, you know, your personal journey is that uh, that any, any crafter or not a crafter at all would be able to open up and feel connection to tradition. And I really love that you use the term tradition bearer, which... I know from you know you you know folk folk terror folk music. Do you want to explain what that tradition bearing is? Because well, I, I think it's read something. The section from the book oh, that would be lovely. That, because I think can... that lots of people would, lots of people who are listening to this will, will recognise that feeling. I think. Yeah. Well, I do. In part, I'm actually happy to thank you for this because when I met, I met um, up with you, Louise, in. Right at the beginning of the book, it didn't was. I? And you, you were really helpful in that you signposted me to a lot of people who were doing really interesting things with wool and places that I could go to. And that was absolutely fantastic. And we talked about tradition a bit then. And it really sat with me as I was going through, you know, through the coming months, the whole year through. It was just, just this kind of idea about what did I feel about tradition? What did I think was the point of it? Mm -hmm. And why was it so important to people? How important was it to me? And so, yeah, this is, I think this is my sort of distilled Okay. Thinking. Um, whilst knitting undoubtedly has many traditions, tradition itself is a fraught word that can divide opinion. Many of us feel comfortable about and comforted by the idea of a preordained way of crafting, as if by reaching back into the past, we can authenticate ourselves and what we make. We seek origins and earlier inspiration and draw on archives and memories and ideas handed down to us from sources specific, shadowy and singular. The idea of one truth, a single and all-encompassing method or technique that dictates how things must be done, beguiles. But, like the tablet handed down to Moses from on high, this is a patriarchal model, and it is also elitist in its unassailability, potentially stifling individual voices under a universal truth. Looking to the world of folk music, where the concept of tradition bearers is strong and relevant, I find a useful parallel. Singers not only transmit older songs learnt often by ear from other singers, but are also free to amend lyrics, tempo, tune and style. For, unless they are sung, the old songs die, and although diehards may bemoan new styles of performance, they also grudgingly acknowledge the need for newness. In this way, folk memories, melodies and lyrics do not die, but grow on, like a vined plant twisting itself across the body of an old tree. To me, then, tradition is important, 
not just because of its attempt to preserve the ever-changing, but because of its ultimate function, to draw humanity together, to help communities coalesce. Yes. <laughs> like, uh, um, I don't know if you would have come across the, the, the analogy of the carrying stream. The Hamish Henderson. So Hamish Henderson, yeah. who, again you know, the father of the folk revival, some people would say. And, and there's that idea of, you know, tradition has to move, it has to carry along, it has to always be evolving. Oh, I just really love that, the use of tradition bear, and I love the idea that it's something to learn, and it's something to pass on. And another touchstone word that, that came up when I was reading this book is value. And another thing, honesty. I just find it so honest. I loved how you the, the struggle was real sometimes. Yes, it was real. <laughs> sometimes I really did think, oh heck, why have I set myself on this Sisyphean task? I loved it. I just loved it because it could have been so easy for you to go, I'll just pick something else and do something else. But I loved that, particularly the null binding one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, my dear. Oh, it'll never be my true love. Well, um, I mean, what kind of knitter were you before you before you started this journey? I was very much a casual hobby knitter and knitting wasn't a big part of my identity mm. at all. Um, I, I used almost exclusively free patterns from Ravelry, which, you know, no judgment at all. But no. I didn't see the I didn't understand the value um, mm -hmm. of good design. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just looking for something, mostly it was for present knitting. Um, mostly it was for yarn I picked up in charity shops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and I just didn't think about it beyond yeah. that. And um, it was very much a kind of, I have a skill, um, it's a useful skill, so I'll make some useful things with it. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really engage with it beyond that. I said I did have a Ravelry account, but I wasn't part of the community. I didn't, I didn't knit into any any listen to any knitting podcasts or youtube channels and um yeah and i think that i was a very average knitter um you know i'd done a bit of stranded color work uh, i'd done jumpers um i'd done kind of little experiments in like christmas ornaments and things mm -hmm. um but i didn't always have something on the needles yeah uh, and i wasn't very confident about my own skills you know I, I knew the things that I could do and that was fine but I hadn't pushed myself I hadn't ever gone to a workshop or a knitting or a yarn festival or anything like that and so it was suddenly like the world opened up to me I realized that there was this whole community of people all over the world who were doing amazingly exciting things um with wool with yarn of all different types um with design and that there was um not only the kind of the stories that I expected about, you know, perhaps where does the wool come from and that kind of thing. Um, but the, you know, the politics of it and how we're all engaged in a political act every time we make something yes. or wear something that's handmade. And it was like, yes, okay, now now I get this. <laughs> it's true as well. That's, a, that's the discussion that I've had with um, some knitters about uh, the idea that knitting shouldn't be political. And down to the very you know, materials you buy and where you choose to buy them from knitting, in essence, is a political act. So it's interesting when you unlock that in yourself, when you see it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I think that moment for me just really kind of, I, I just changed from being somebody who knitted to being a knitter. A knitter. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I would, you know, really happily describe myself as that, as that now. Mm -hmm. um, but it really wasn't like a kind of, you know, a, a cornerstone of, of myself at that point. It didn't feel like that. Um, but I love the fact that you can say so much with knitting and you can explore so much and you can make it so meaningful. It's um, almost overwhelming when you think yes, about it. You know, I, it I, had, be, really. I had a conversation with um, a friend uh, the weekend about what, what, what is it? 
what is it that wool does that that so soothes your mental ill health, your physical pain? What what is that magic? Where does that magic come from? It's like something that you can barely even begin to comprehend or, or, or describe. It's something that's really quite ancient and magical. It is, and I think um, I think there's a strong element about creative freedom there. I think there's a strong element of having control over uh, material um, oh, and the outcome. Of that. Um, and I, th I, so I think it's incredibly powerful and enabling in a good mm. way. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's also um, the sheer physical joy in response to, to, to beauty and material things. Um, and then also I think there is the kind of, the like uh, the rhythm of it um, mm -hmm. and the compulsion to get into that rhythm because of your brain needing a break from other stimuli. Oh, that's incredible. And I think that that is, I can't, that is the, the sort of intangible headspace yeah. that was actually really, really helpful for writing the book. I hadn't anticipated this at all um, when I started, but I don't know, like, I'm now just thinking about work, starting work on my second book, and I'm like, I'm going to have to knit my way through this book as well because I need the headspace, <laughs> just because it forced me to stop, uh, you know, being bombarded with lots of information and actually think about it and digest it. It does and... help you. I, th I, I think I do my best thinking when I'm knitting. Yeah. Spinning, I don't know if you spin now, very little. I do have a wheel, but I don't. It's do it very like little. that occupies a different headspace altogether. It's, you can understand why there's folklore about about spinning. I yeah. think you know there's that. It's a very liminal kind oh. of space that you can occupy when you're when you're doing that. I think I'll constantly be astounded and amazed about what knitting can actually do. That's when people say, "Oh, I, I'm just a knitter." That little modifier of just, just when, no, no, no. when it's like the the absolutely amazing, incredible things that are happening in your brain around you while you're doing it. It is a bit of magic, I think. It's incredible. It is, and I also think it's an intrinsically narrative process because you're following one continuous line. Mm -hmm. Whatever you're making, you're building on what's gone before, and you're taking it to a new place and that is essentially storytelling it is and so i think it's deeply connected to our need for stories and our need for coherence and making sense of things and our own narratives of our lives and i think something like like a gansey which can be so intensely personal is a story it is a story. made flesh or yeah. made fleece um so it's i think that that um the potential for talking through your knitting um, and connecting and communicating through it, it is a really powerful element. It's like blogs and podcasts were made for knitters, really. Absolutely. Speaking about Gansies, we were talking about before um, we started recording about how it's so lovely to hear people say, oh, I'm now inspired to make a Gansy. I'm oh. now inspired to make a Gansy. It really is. And particularly personal item, as, as you say. Um, I wonder if you might be able to read a little bit about making a Gansy for your dad. Because sure. again, the idea of value in terms of making for other people. Love that, um, the knitworthiness of that. Yeah. Um, well, the reason I chose my dad was because he is a gardener and so he's out in all weathers. And so I thought a, a, a Gansy is such a working item of clothing you know it's for working people to wear mm -hmm. that's what it was made for um and so well shall I shall I read yes, it and let's tell you a little well. bit about why traditional handmade gansies were made to measure to fit the men who wore them mirroring the bend of their back and the swell of their stomach this level of intimacy non-sexual and practical is almost unknown in our world of pret -a porter and off the peg before I start to knit in earnest I need to choose and carefully measure the man who will wear my gansey. 
I do not know any working fisherman. The only man I know who works outdoors every day is my father. At 70, he ends his, he ends his keep digging, pruning and planting, and lives a scant few miles from where he was born and has done so all his life. Dad knows who has recently lost a husband or a wife who might need their hedges trimmed and their borders kept in check and can read the clouds and the birds to tell the weather. Out in all seasons, a gardener might benefit from a gansey every bit as much as a fisherman. I go home for the weekend and take out my tape measure as Dad stands in the sitting room with his arms outstretched. I lean forward to wrap the tape under his armpits and as I do so, I realise that this is the closest I have been to him since childhood. Six feet tall, when I stand up straight, he says, <laughs> my dad is a big man who left school at 14 and worked in foundries and machining shops before turning his hand to gardening. The tape pulled taut, his chest measures 46 inches. I check my Gansey size guide. It only goes as far as 44. I sigh, my dad grins. I get my youngest brother to hold the tape at Dad's shoulder and I check the length at his wrist, 27 inches. The guide stops at 20. He's off the scale, I wail, and Dad roars with laughter. Arms 10 inches longer than the biggest pattern but with a short barrel chest, Dad seems to be part gorilla. This is not really a revelation. On my wedding day, Dad turned up in a smart second-hand tweed jacket, a hand-me-down from someone tall but of normal proportions. The jacket sleeves stopped halfway down Dad's forearms. <laughs> so uh, yes, that's um, so that's it me was... making my, <laughs> <laughs> the super made, which I set myself this challenge of, of making a, one thing for every month, mm -hmm. um, and I, I really should have worked out. I was onto a loser when I found out that um, people who knitted Gansies for for sale would take between six weeks and two months. And that was knitting all the time. So. But it's lovely. I feel like it's the heart of the book almost. You know, uh, that it's one of the things that, that follows you through most of the chapters. And it, I feel, yes, again, really that's does. that kind of um, that value in, in being knitworthy and having somebody make for you and make that part of your journey. I just thought that was really lovely. Really, really lovely. Yeah, my, my dad loves the Gansey, but he thinks it's too special to wear for work. <laughs> in a plastic bag with cedar balls in <laughs> anyway it's also very busy touring with me at the moment I've been oh, taking it with me to my book events and oh, so it's, it's been well ad admired does he not and... know the process of the you know the Gamsey that he wears it until it's he needs a new one yeah. well indeed I think at this rate he's going to long outlive it <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny um, so you you settled on was it 10? yeah they were originally going to be 10 and then um, yeah. there I actually well, 12, 13 really, um, mm -hmm. in the in the course of the book. Um, were there any that were really difficult to make, you know, that to choose or choose from, um, that you didn't make it in? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of Britain's um, knitting history, particularly its um, machine knitting history, mm. it was around the production of stockings mm -hmm. and you know knitting machines being developed in the 16th century. It's way early, and they were developed to knit stockings. Anyway, um, I didn't want to have an entire book about stocking knitting because I thought well, people needed a bit of diversity here. Uh, but I did find these amazing stockings in St Fagan's Museum in Cardiff. So it's the Welsh National Folk Collection um, that they have there. And there were these gorgeous stockings in uh, this huge collection. Um, and they were white and they had, um, at the garter band, they had a woman's name, Eliza Lewis, worked into it in red. Uh, and what they were were funeral stockings. So 
these were made for people to wear when they were laid out after death and they would be um, worn with a, with a shroud or, or a gown and a cap and they were only for use for that so they weren't ever worn in the rest of life mm. um, and they were really common what the other thing I, I saw them for the first time in Wales and that was relatively near the end of the project that was that was October of the year and I then discovered that they were in, or examples of them had been found in Angus, in Cambridgeshire, Leicestershire, Nottinghamshire, mm. literally all over. Um, and that they, yeah, that they were, they weren't all wool necessarily. Some of them were cotton. Some of them um, were machined. Some of them were hand knitted. Uh, and yeah, they were just this big part of when people used to prepare the bodies themselves for funerals, which yeah. is obviously something we don't do anymore. But something that was done by everybody, um, or at least everyone would know somebody who who yeah. was who would do that. Anyway, the reason that this particular pair ended up in St Fagans was because the woman who made them had dropsy, uh, and so she didn't fit them when it came oh. to. Uh, and I think these were actually given as a wedding present, and that was very common um, to give them as a wedding present with the woman's new name on them, um, along with coffin wood, which would be. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, I think now we're we're quite squeamish about death, but obviously it was a very practical mm. thing that just had mm. to be. It is still a very practical thing that has to be dealt with, and we need to know how we do this yeah. and what we feel about it. But I have to say, so I thought, well, these are these are absolutely beautiful. I mean, could I could I make some funeral stockings? And I thought, well, who on earth could I make them for? I thought, well, could I make them for me? And that just seems so morbid. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, is there anyone else a little closer to the <laughs> shuffling off this mortal coil? And I thought, I just can't do that to somebody. No, you know, like, it's it would like, seem... like divining somehow. That... Exactly. It's like, it is a kind of witchcraft. And uh, I read um, this Bruce Chatwin novel um, on the Black Hill, which is set in a farm called The Vision in the Welsh countryside. And in it, there is this older, sort of the matriarch of the family, and she doesn't like the new wife that's come in, and she sort of sits in the corner of the room, <laughs> knitting her own funeral stockings, and when she gets to the heel, turning the heel on the second one, you know, she's not got long to go. Oh, my but word. She's there, almost, it's not quite casting spells, but, you know, it's yeah, definitely it a very folkloric image um, of this this older woman with her kind of magic skills that she's wow. starts working there. Anyway, so I sort of I wanted to tell this the story is in there, um, yeah. but I just couldn't bring myself to knit them. And then um, there were for Shetland, I really struggled with Shetland to find just two things. I mean, there was so much that I could have knitted. Such a um, lot. Such a lot. And and going up at Wool Week again, I I could have written an entire book just about. You know, it's, it's such a wealth there, and the fact that it's the only place in the British Isles where is that there's that unbroken knitting tradition stretching back mm. centuries because there's lots of other places that have it but most of the time it's dropped off at some point and it's only now done by hobbyists and um, whereas in Shetland obviously it's not it's still people's still, livelihoods yeah and, definitely and so um I, I settled on the idea of the sampler just because it enabled me to tell lots of different stories and experiment with lots of different patterns Brilliant idea. um but it took me a long time to settle on that um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I kind of looked at what I was doing I was like well I guess actually this is and I decided to wear it as a scarf in the end so it shut at the ends um, and then I, I did a second chapter on um, hat knitting and lace knitting for open work uh, and again I hadn't anticipated doing that but there was just so much so much and I just was like I like oh, I have to do this and then I was given some very very special yarn um, the St Kilden lace yes. uh, from Jane Cooper at Burnside Farm and I so wanted to include the story of those sheep and um, the that st structure a garment that had the Shetland um, 
open work tradition and the history of the of sheep breeding and the whole, like the whole of human history in the British Isles encapsulated in those two things. Um, yeah. So, but I was quite late on in the. I mean, it really was like after I went to Shetland that I decided to to have to include that chapter. Um, so, so yeah. Um, wow. It, it took me quite a long time to, to settle on those things. Mm. And... We, did, we did have somebody in the Woolwork Ravelry group. Mm-hmm. I think it was Wollombi Dreamer who was asking about Sanker versus yes. Dentdale yes. gloves. Well, this is an interesting one. So I started with the Dentdale gloves simply because they were what was to hand. Um, so I began the book <laughs> in, in Cumbria because my uh, in-laws and my father-in-law is a curator of the Wordsworth Museum. And so he was unable to, he was able to let me in, in the Christmas holidays to have a look at these gloves. Um, and um, in fact, shall I just read the little bit that the, oh, yeah. there's the start of it? Um, so because I, I'd, as I say, when I, when I was just talking about making um, gloves from the V&A patterns, and those were 1940s were wartime patterns, uh, but I did know that I could do glove knitting, so I thought this was a good start. Mm. Um and then I got given a present from my mum. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, they say, this is in Cumbria, just after Christmas. New Year's Day dawned clear and cold, and we strode out to shake off the old year's languor. The frost-nipped air blew in chilly celebration as we got out of the car at Rusland Cross and took the first steps of the year towards Hyakenthwaite. Bundled into coats, with scarves wrapping us like untidy parcels, we were pushed along by brisk winter winds. After an hour, we reached the wood at Heald Brow, ringed with a f- wooden fence and topped with rusting wire. Caught in the fence's barbs were tufts of wool, silver in winter's weak sun. Sheep at the bounds of their territory had scratched their itches here, leaving traces of themselves on the wire. I pulled away some fibres and rolled them on my palm. Grey, black and white, the strands curled in my hand. They felt waxy against my fingers, soft and greasy with lanolin. I balled the the fibres in my pocket and carried them with me like a charm. By half past three, the gloaming began to gather in, driving us indoors. Warm and weary, I let the weather pin me to the sofa, where I looked again through my Christmas presents. Inside a paper bag with the tag, Love from Mum, were four balls of wool, peaty black, charcoal, dove grey and white. Banded with paper round the middle, this was Shetland Heritage yarn from Jamieson and Smith, and printed on the band was a line of tiny symbols. A shepherd's crook, a hand dipped in water, an iron crossed through, and three tiny Shetland sheep with horns and curling fleeces, staring down the crook. Three renegades from Britain's northeastern edge, their horns a proud trumpet and a warning. I took a sniff. A strong outdoor smell, rich and greasy, caught my nostrils. It was an unmistakably sheepy funk, the same scent from Hillbrow Wood. Woolly fibres waved and snaked away from the yarn's central strand, black flecked with white, cream specks on brown. This was soft and sturdy Shetland Wu, the W and L clipped off the English word. Familiar yet strange, The wool had come from among some 700 crofts and farms in Shetland's scattered archipelago, caught between the Atlantic Ocean and the North Sea. My four balls of yarn, fading dark to light, yielded to the pressure in my palm, then bounced back, comfortable in their shape. My fingers prickled with the urge to knit them up. What would I make from this hardy wool? 
so I had that experience of having this yarn, um, which d demanded that I do something interesting with it. Uh, and then I had the museum just there with these amazing stranded colour work gloves. And so I, I began there and um, it was as simple as that, really. Mm. And then I did know about Sanka gloves because of having lived in Ayrshire. Mm. Uh, but I didn't have access to any. Um, so I sort of put the thought to one side and then when I was doing my research and later on and I thought, oh, well, should, should there be a, chap a chapter on Sanka um, mitts? But I realised that because I talked so much about the construction in the first chapter, there would be quite a lot of repeating material. Yeah. And so I made the decision to not have it in um, at the risk of being too repetitious. Mm. Uh, but of course, the day I was knitting wasn't just gloves. Uh, there was bump stockings, stockings. and all sorts of other things mm. that were made. And so, although that's the kind of the, our takeaway from it yeah. now, it was actually a much more diverse um, area historically. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm wary of the time that we have, so I'm, I have a couple more questions mm. for you though. And this might be a difficult question. Is it possible to narrow down what was your favorite project to make and what was the most fascinating um, tradition to research and why? Oh, now that is tricky. I mean, I really did love knitting the Gansey because uh, there was such a broad tradition to draw on. There were so many stories associated with it and I did want to do a bit of kind of myth-busting with that and work mm. out what was actually known and what was... That's not to say that stories aren't important, but to work out where the fact and fiction line is, if we can. Um, and, but I've actually brought it with me, so Ooh. I'll talk through a little bit. Yeah. Like. Um, so, because I wasn't working because I'm not from a, um, a Gansey knitting community, and I was very aware of that, that I wasn't, you know, a kind of tradition bearer in the, in the mm. most obvious sense. Um, so this is oh, one that wow. I... Oh, wow, the weight! Oh, <laughs> yeah, my word! It's it is really heavy. Um, um, I wanted, basically, for it to be a palimpsest of my dad's life and the things that were important to him, or things I hope were important to him. Um, I used a uh, quite a plain pattern that um, Freyalyn Close Hainsworth put online, uh, which is a Manx Gansey, so it's mm -hmm. in the Manx Museum at, I think, Port Mary. And like quite a lot of the workaday Gansies, it has a plain, well, it has a welt, and then it just has the plain arms and plain body. And then it's really just the, the bit around the yoke and the chest that are um, mm. that are patterned. And I thought, well, the, obviously the reason for this was because bits would be re-knitted mm -hmm. um, and replaced. Uh, but I thought, actually, this gives me enough of a canvas to work on without being totally you, yeah. you know intimidating um and i it also has the initials of the person who owned it we don't know who he was uh but it has them worked here so i put my dad's in there as so it's mfr oh yes um that's his initials and then uh another agamzi had the number of the children or in fact a couple of, of other places this was done so there are three roman numeral three oh, yeah. there um within knit and pearl um so so that makes again it makes it very personal to him and then the motifs themselves, um, because of the gardening link, we've got ridge and furrow here. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to see, like you need to shine the light it's across it. It's wonderful though, it's, like that, it's a, a part of the tactile nature of, of knits as well, that you can sort of read it almost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I did experiment with knitting with my eyes shut um, just to see how that was. And oh, you do yeah. have to, your, your mind has to get used to it's trusting your hands. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I did, took Tree of Life, uh, for, which again isn't a traditional Gansey pattern necessarily, mm. though it does crop up sometimes, but um, it's not a seafaring one anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, you've got actually what a, it's a moss stitch with a kind of little shrubs. Hard to see, but yeah. that's, that's what it is. 
um, and then the back is different. We've got ridge and furrow at the bottom, but you've also got again a series of trees. Here, oh yeah, and then a, a large apple. I just took these motifs. Um, well, some of them I just made up, <laughs> like the apple itself. Uh, and then this one had been used on. I can't even remember. It was a des uh, design I saw on Ravelry, and I just thought, oh, that's perfect with with the incredible. Um, but then actually the really hard thing was because I was using Ray Compton's um book to do the sizing mm -hmm. but I didn't have enough repeats and I had these the joining sections I wasn't oh, sure yeah. what to do because I, I didn't want to have the cable so I put the the four um, stitch cable in there but then I still had a gap and my father's father worked on the railways and he laid sleepers uh, and replaced railway sleepers and that was his job in fact he only had four fingers on one hand because one had slipped one icy morning and taken Ooh. it off anyway but i wanted to have that connection back in another generation so you've got railroad in here which again isn't a traditional gansey pattern at all but it's incredible but it yeah and i think it functions nicely it's as a divider beautiful. between and then you've got the the gusset under the, the gusset, arc yeah um, and then a bit of seed stitch in there uh, so yeah it's so incredible. that's um, that's kind of how it so I, again, I was the stories in this and the kind of making it for with a very specific person in mind. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoyed that and the the fact that the history really does span the whole of the British Isles, all the way from the Channel Islands up to Lerwick. Yeah, and, you know, it's incredible. out to the west and everywhere. So as I say, I think we're going to definitely have a bit of a Gansey focus on the podcast next year because um, it's definitely something that if you're in the UK. Um, for sure, but I, I mean, I don't know. There are Gansey's obviously traditions out with the UK as oh, well. Absolutely. So. Well, I think it's it's also something that was so nearly lost because <sighs> yeah. of the change in um, working communities and moving from being a predominantly mm -hmm. seafaring nation to one where seafaring or uh, occupations which in, involve going out onto the sea were a large part just disappeared within yeah. a generation, and so there was no point in having a Gansey if you. You know, and then again, for your work, you know, things we were talking about earlier about, you know, how things are archived and catalogued. And um, I think that was something that Stella Rua, um, who did the mm, Dutch Gansies, yeah. you know, and she'd go to uh, fishing museums and say, show me your Gansies. And they'd be like, what? What's a Gansie? And she'd have to go through images and say, this is a Gansie and show them the pictures and show the importance of. So even, you know, things that have been preserved, aspects of it have that the ability to become lost. So I think it's an amazing thing to that you've added your own important stitches to it as well to keep it evolving. Cutting, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not a perfect Gandhi, but that isn't really the point. You know, I learned it's... so much through going through yeah. the process. And um, So is that also your favourite? Um... I think it's a close run thing. So I think um, I think the three things that I'm kind of most oh, proud of, one is, is the sampler from Shetland, mm -hmm. just because it has all the stories in it. And I dyed some of the yarn myself for it too. Yes. And, with... uh, and oh, because... I was so aware of how the Shetland tradition um, was the one recognisable thing, the Fair Isle. Mm -hmm. Everybody, how little they know about knitting, they know what Fair Isle no looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the history of it is really obscure to most people. And, you know, the fact that the truck system went up until the 1940s, if not beyond. Beyond, and, I think, yeah, yeah. Then it's, I just felt that this is such a, it's not my history, but I want to, share this thought these stories yeah. um with a broader audience and it was fun to knit as well because it's so um exciting and because each motif i didn't know i didn't have the pl the whole thing planned out at all i used the sample book uh, the um graph book it's um, great that um incredible the graph, yeah the knitters, what's the, it called knitters fair graph, graph book, book. Mm -hmm. yep 
Um, yeah, and really big thanks to the Guild in Shetland for, for getting it out there and, and allowing it to be published. Did you just choose the colours as you went as well? No, so I had, I went, when I was in Shetland, so I had um, four lots of the Shetland heritage that my mum would give me, as well as the black and, mm-hmm. you know, the undyed ones, she'd also give me four um, red, blue, green and yellow. Mm. And then I went to Jameson's and Jameson and Smith to add just the ones that yeah. I liked from that. They're incre- I mean, I really love that heritage range. I think uh, it's one of my, I just, it's just different to what you think of if you yes. think of it of a jumper weight or four ply Shetland wool I think the worsted is different to what's av- available commercially but it is designed to be like what Shetland hand spun Shetland wool would have been like and I think that's why I kind of heritage is a good name for it yes I absolutely I just love it it's incredible yeah and, and and having the sampler means that you can really see how it does can, differ yeah. from um, you know because it's, it's framed there by, yeah. by other yarns and yeah it really has a Beautiful. character all its own and then the the hat that the I made hap. so yeah I obviously discovered I was pregnant and right yes. at the end of the book chapter 11 uh, and so my daughter had unbeknownst to me actually been with me on the journey um, to Orkney and to Shetland and so I in Shetland I did a, a course with the amazing and um, you know, impeccably pedigreed Donna Smith <laughs> uh, and it was she who who taught me how to you know do it from the borders in and um, and then I had the yarn from Orkney from the Burnside Borrays which forms the main panel it's lovely. this is the, the first yarn that she ever had spun so special her on her own flock so so yeah and again because of who I was making it for and I didn't know she was going to be a girl at that point but um it was lovely to to knit, you know, have my yarn over my bump and think this is I'm making it for you. <laughs> yeah, it's such that I talk about never they again. My goodness me. So now you're standing on this side of it mm-hmm. all, going through that whole process of book journey, getting the book out there and published and now you've done this incredible tour. How do you feel now? Um I feel I feel really buoyed up by how many people have got in touch to tell me that it's inspired them to make their own journeys. I think that is the biggest compliment that I can be paid, that more people are picking up their needles or picking them up again um, yeah. since reading it. Um, and I think that that is a, a massive testament to the power of knitting and the potential of knitting, that it's, you know, it's such a, a deceptively simple looking thing that it is, you know, people can master it quite quickly, but then the possibilities are infinite. Um, and to be able to not, because my book isn't a guidebook, it's not a how-to book at all, but that's exactly what it, what I wanted it to be because everyone will have their own personal journey with knitting and the thought that everyone or more people now are going off onto these amazing voyages of discovery with their needles is is, is the, the biggest and most flattering thing that could have possibly come out of it. Um, so yeah, so that's that's lovely and particularly as a first time author you don't know how a book is going to be received uh, but I think one of the lovely things about our knitting community is that people um, want to share their experiences and so you actually find out some of those things yeah and I mean it's it's like I, I say that knit in the book I say that knitting is a postern between oft shuttered worlds because it does allow us to have conversations and build relationships that we wouldn't be able to do without this craft um, yeah. magic again it is magic, magic. Yeah. so what <laughs> so first time author yeah. what about what about future books is there anything you're working yes. on or anything there, there is something i'm trying to work on around around a lot of childcare <laughs> um so i am really interested in the connection between um british culture or you know, yeah, culture of the british isles and um 
Northern European and Scandinavian culture, and particularly because of the shared sheep breeding history. Yes. Uh, and also because we we had to spend most of the summer in Norway this year for my husband's work. And obviously they have a fantastically diverse and very lively and vibrant um, craft yeah. heritage and, and community. And it's it's not going to be the same as um, this Golden Fleece, but I it's something I really want to explore in the second book. Um, again, kind of looking at, at place and... Um, and craft and meaning but in a different slightly different way uh, so yes watch this space that's exciting <laughs> well thank you so so much for Not coming along to Woolwork HQ pleasure. and look Jeremy has been sleeping all the time like she's <laughs> given me a bad reputation because I, I say in this podcast with the cat's being annoying or she's just, just laid there she's just quite Actually, happy yeah she either she's heard it all before or she <laughs> <laughs> or she finds it very soothing. I'm oh, sure thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I am so grateful to Esther um, for coming by and making time um, to chat with me for the podcast. Uh, from meeting her back in, in 2017 when she was sort of, I suppose, the first six months or so of her of her journey, I guess. Um, it's, it's really a fabulous, unique book in that, you know, there's nothing quite like it out there so if you haven't already got it or uh, partners of knitters and wool lovers if you're looking for a gift um then this is a this is a cracking book um to leave in someone's stocking this winter uh thank you so much to esther i can't wait to find out um what the next part of your journey um has in store for you and for us your readers And I have been thinking for a long time that we should have a Gansey focus uh, at Woolwork. Uh, it keys in very much to my love of stories in our stitches, uh, a history of textiles. And I know that you love a knit along. And I know that lots of Woolwork listeners have been um, bitten by the thought of um, creating Gansies from reading Esther's book. So... Later in 2020, we will probably be having a bit of a Gansey focus. It's not going to be straight after the Tinka Knits Long. It will probably be end of the summer 2020. So um, that's something to look forward to. But in our more immediate future, we have the Tinka Knits Long, which will be casting on on the 1st of December, which maybe right now as you are listening to this podcast... Are you in? I am absolutely blown away by the enthusiasm for this. Again, Woolwork listeners, um, very, very keen for a cow. And um, you take the idea and, and really run with it. Over in the Woolwork Ravelry group, um, there has been a bit of old chit-chat. I'm so happy to see so many of you planning your um, your makes. Uh, let's see, who have we got? 
uh, Blythe Spirit, Maylin, um, thinking about making something from the Strange Brew, Brew Collection or maybe a love note. Uh, Katie, uh, Kate Loves Pumpkins, thinking about making the second Lush in Cartrev Yarn. How lovely. Helen Hecky Thump, she's been thinking hard about it. She's either thinking uh, an undertone cowl, um, which is part of her good intentions. And if you are doing a Tin Can Knits project for your good intentions club this quarter, you'll be able to double dip, of course. She's also thinking to, to make the snowflake sweater, which is something that crossed my mind too, actually, I have to say. And then she says, it could be a Christmas jumper, steady on Helen, no crazy deadlines. No, there is no crazy deadlines. This whole cal is um, going to go from the 1st of December to the 14th of February. So if you want to make a Christmas jumper, then you impose your own deadline <laughs> on that. Um, but there is no need. It's, you know, it's a winter cal, so we can knit beyond Christmas. Um, Sue1292 uh, has already made herself a lush um, and she's thinking of doing a Gramps cardigan for her grandson. Pitsella um, is thinking of uh, another one for, for a love note. Ginny um, is, is thinking about making a windswept uh, sweater from the Handmade in the UK book, which is a beautiful sweater um, in some Shetland DK. Emma1969 is another one who's um, thinking about a love note, which is brilliant, very popular choice. Carol Brown is thinking Strange Brew, another popular choice. Charlotte is thinking of an old growth uh, made in uh, the Dalton Flock DK. She says it's quite heavy and it's a beautiful blue. I've had that in my stash since last year's Wool Fest. Brilliant stash dye for. That would also probably qualify for a good intention, I think, Charlotte. Dr. Sazmak has been drawn in by a love note. Um... My Wool Mitten, another uh, snowflake. Uh, no Butterfly is thinking of the Hitchcock pattern, which is a beautiful pattern, which um, appeared in Pom Pom. Fantastic sweater, really nice um, sort of, I don't know, do we call it a placket front with buttons? Um, oh, very nice, very nice. Uh, for the Knit of It is definitely up for a cal. There's lots of patterns in her library. Um, so she's just going to figure out which one, which is great. And lots more of you. I'm really, really excited. And um, and I think... Uh, now, you see, I'm torn slightly. Because I was going to do a, a, a lush in <laughs> Wensleydale, Longwell Sheep Shop. And I have the yarn for it, so it would be a good intention. I have some beautiful aubergine. Um, and I really, really, really do want to make that cardigan again. I get such a lot of wear out of my lush. I've spoken about it quite a lot. But also... I have had Snowflake in my um, queue for a while too and I think I probably have a sweater's quantity um, in another suitable yarn. I'll have to go stash diving to see what I have. Um, I would do it in one colour, um, I think. Um, I kind of have been coming around to this way of thinking because Knit Shed on Instagram was asking about festive sweaters and I had suggested that. And now it's put the thought in my head that maybe I could make myself a snowflake as well. Not for Christmas. Um, jumpers are for life. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, here in the UK, there's an advert commercial for Marks and Spencers where they have this sort of festive jumper thing. And it just drives me bonkers because I'm like, jumpers are for life. They're not just for Christmas. Get over it, Marks and Spencers. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not sure what I will cast on. 
Um, obviously, I'm recording this. It's a whole week before the Cal start date. So um, you might see me swithering further on this on social media um, between now and then. Um, but rest assured, I will have cast something on for the cast on date, which is the 1st of December. I have mentioned that there will be prizes. I do already have some prizes. Um, I'm not going to go into them at the moment. Um, as you know, Calzit will work, you know, historically Calzit and British were, are always about the taking part and not about what you might win. So I tend to announce prizes near the end of the Cal as a little cat on a stick. Um, if there's anyone out there who would like to donate a prize, please get in touch. Um, you can get in touch with me via Ravelry or you can email me. There's a contact form on the website where the show notes are. That, that would be lovely. Talking about carrots on sticks, if you already have a Tin Can Knits project on the go and you need a carrot on a stick to help you get it finished, why not use this cal as that um, carrot on a stick? So if you are casting on on the 1st of December, I would like you to use uh, the tags Woolwork Winter Cal and Tin Can Knits Along. Uh, on your Ravelry projects and on social media and if you already have a Tin Can Knits project on the go and you want to use the Cal for motivation then I would like you to use Tin Can Whips uh, as your tag and I will have a prize for as well as other categories I will have a prize for someone who used this Cal um, to get their whips um, finished so Everybody wins and everybody can take part. As I say, have said before, there is no, um, you don't have to use British wool. You can use any material that you so wish um, and um, there's nothing stopping you from joining in. I guarantee you that you will have at least one Tin Can Knits project in your library if not more and if you don't if you really don't well there's the incredible free simple collection as well um so you don't have to go out and buy patterns um for this cal um everyone can take part there is no stopping you so um i look forward to seeing your progress um i raise my glass uh, or my bottle of water uh to progress that will be made in this knit along it's lovely to be having another knit along Thanks for joining in if you are. Something else that will be here upon us before we even know it is the C word. Now, some of you may not do Christmas and that is fine. Long time listeners will know, not a fan of the festive season myself. But we have a little tradition here, um, which is now going to become a Woolwork tradi tradition uh, of the small gestures a pattern swap. This is something that we do every year. You basically sign up, you get paired up and you have to gift your partner something from their pattern wish list. It's really, really, really simple. And then they do the same for you. Um, it's just a lovely way to get something um, that you really, really want. Heaven knows Christmas is a time of overspending, spending too much money and sometimes little thought on what you're getting for people. Not all, not everyone's like that, but that is sometimes the overarching feeling that you get. Um, so this is just a nice way 
to give something to someone um, that has been on their wish list and then getting something in return. And that's just nice. We can all do with that small boost. And, you know, the small gestures. Oh, I don't know how many years we've been doing this now. This is this six years now. Can that be right? It's just really nice. Lots of friendships have been born out of it and lots of fantastic knitted items have been born out of it as well. Um, so at some point in the next week or so, I will open that thread 17th or 18th um, to sign up and then I pair you up by the winter solstice and um, you have to gift your pattern um, by Christmas Eve. Um, so those are the only rules. Um, so look out for that um, happening um, and coming up very soon. My last um, bit of the podcast today is from the hands-on wool exploration day that we had at Fine Fettel Fibres in um, October. And um, this is from the the talks in the afternoon that we held. Um, last, last episode you heard from Johnny King from Garthenor. This time it's the turn of Alice Underwood, who uh, is a, works for the Rare Breeds Survival Trust, and she's going to tell us a little bit about the role of the Rare Breeds Survival Trust, which I think is something that you will all be really interested to hear about. I talk about the Rare Breeds Survival Trust a lot in terms of the sheep watch list. Whilst we all have a basic grasp of that understanding and what that means. Um, this is is a really interesting talk. Now, I have to say, Alice had a few uh, problems with her um, PowerPoint presentation. So I've edited around, um, tried to edit around those um, a little bit. Um, but I think you'll find this really, really fascinating. Um, so over to Alice. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit initially about why did we even need RBST to exist? I'm going to give you a couple of case histories and, unsurprisingly, Manx Lockton is one of them. Manx Lockton comes from the Owl of Man. Um, Louise earlier was talking about the primitive breeds, whether you call them the North Atlantic short-tailed breeds, whether you call them the Northern European short-tailed breeds, but it comes under that category. But with a name like that, obviously, have spent <coughs> the last many hundred years on the Isle of Man. Up into the 18th century, there were thousands of these sheep, absolutely thousands. But the numbers went down and down and down and down, and it was close to extinction three times. And by extinction, we mean can never come back. Um, in 1911, so 100 years ago, there were just four <coughs> small flocks remaining. So then you start looking at what you can do to try and keep the breed going. So a small group were brought over in the 1950s to London Zoo. They then moved to Whipsonay Zoo, but it just shows how people's impression of these animals was, that these were weird and wonderful animals that belonged in the zoo. There are now over a thousand on the Isle of Man and a little under a thousand on the UK mainland. But you'll hear from numbers later, that's still not enough. We're not there yet. We've not got them saved. Um, another one that you'll heard about from Louise were the Soleil sheep and the Borore sheep. Those of you that don't know your Scottish geography, uh, <coughs> there's 
the St Kilda archipelago, about 45 miles out into the Atlantic, um, far, far west, very, very rough life. In, the, in 1930, there were only 26 living on the inhabited island of Herta out there, at which point they all thought, time to go, can't do this anymore. Came back to mainland with their domesticated sheep, but the feral sheep that were on the island of Soe and Borore were left behind, and they just got up to their own mischief, and that was that. So again, so easily could have been wiped out. So here we've got the information there. Between 1926 and 1973, 26 British breeds became extinct. Now that's not just sheep because RBST is also involved with cattle, horses, poultry and pigs and goats as well as sheep. But that's an awful lot in about 25, 50 years rather. Um, there were three breeds of sheep that disappeared, four breeds of sheep that disappeared completely. I actually haven't heard of any of them, so I was quite interested to get this information through. Um, I don't know if anybody here has heard of a limestone, um, a St. Rona's Hill, a Ross Common, and I can't even pronounce the R-H-I-W, is that Rue? Rue? <laughs> Something unusual, but gone completely, and we can never get these sheep back. So in 1973, Joe Henson set up the Rare Breed Survival Trust. Joe Henson is actually the dad of Adam Henson that many of you see on the telly. And since then, not one single breed has become extinct. So they're doing a good job, or we're doing a good job. Um, I just arrange things behind the scenes. Um, it's a membership organisation. A lot of us are livestock keepers. But actually, when I joined, I joined because I was interested in wool and getting to know about sheep breeds, and I didn't own any sheep at that point. So a variety of people join. Um, but I think a good news story that we actually haven't lost anything. We monitor the number of rare breeds that there are. Um, so SOE numbers, I've mentioned the SOEs, there were around 800 in 2006, went up to 1,500 in 2014, but are now coming down. Borrowing numbers got so low that they were classed as critical, and that means a very, very small number. That's below 300 breeding ewes, so a very, very small number. Um, but there, that's picked up really well, and I'll, I'll mention Borrowing later. Saving genetics, you know, the worst could happen and a breed could go. So we have two things, we have semen collections and we have, we're now having frozen embryos. It may sound grim, but how else are we going to keep it going? And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, promotion, well, we try and get on the telly, in the magazines, in the papers and so on. And I'll give some examples shortly about other ways in which we do that. Um, and we've just this week, or it's actually being launched the beginning of November, but it's in our latest uh, magazine, talking about some corporate supporters and corporate partnerships um, to try and get businesses on board and other people. One of the first real success stories are the North Ronald say, and Louise has mentioned those briefly. Um, the seaweed eating sheet, the wall that was built round, for those of you that didn't hear it, they were deemed to be potentially at risk because the exploration for oil in the 1970s meant that if you had one large oil spillage, that flock, all those sheep would be gone. 
So what the RBST did was buy another island and move some of the sheep onto that island at some distance from North Ronaldsay. Um, and that's now they're on mainland as well, so they've, they've spread around a lot more and the island's been sold and that's all fine. Um, but yes, there was this reserve flock of 200 sheep. And again, you'll hear me mention later, the need to get sheep, although they come from specific areas, most often, is to try and get them scattered around the place because it's a much, much better chance of survival if you can do that. So what is a native breed um, and how do we monitor them? Numerical, uh, well, genetic breed existence. So the breed needs to have been around for 40 years. You'll hear of all sorts of um, mixed breeds that are going on at the moment and ultimately they may be deemed to be a native breed but they've got to be have been around for a long time for that to happen and also you need to have had a flock book going for at least 25 years so that you've got some guidance as to what that breed actually is and what it means and so on um, so I'm wondering if that, oh good, that did come in. Um, sorry, I've part borrowed this from somebody else. So part's mine and part's from someone else. And she's clearly got very clever things going on her bit. Um, so we do go from the critical I've mentioned for the borrow rate, which is less than 300 breeding ewes. Uh, then you've got endangered, 300 to 500. I mean, we're talking very small numbers here. Vulnerable, I have to look it up, 500 to 900. At risk, and that's what most people think of, they think rare breeds are at risk, but actually that is only one section of them. So that's 900 to 1500, and a minority is 1500 to 3000. We then have another category that isn't shown on there, but that's any other native breed. And some of our breeds that have been at risk, or worse, have now moved up in the rating, even though it looks down, and are now classed as other native breed, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So there we go uh, with the RBST watch list. I'm not expected you to be able to read that from where you are, but just to show that you've got a variety here, we were talking earlier of the long wolves that are appearing in vulnerable as well as at risk. Um, a lot of the primitive breeds we've mentioned, they're very much coming into these two categories here. In terms of how you get your number of sheep, it isn't just somebody going out with a clipboard counting them all. Um, there's a method, and if any of you are dog owners, you might know about registration of your, your breed and belonging to a register, but you have to pay to register your sheep, so not everybody is going to do that because it's just yet another cost to pay. And trust me, sheep farming is not a highly profitable business. Well, not where I come from anyway. Um, so there's a rounding figure for that and they actually use for sheep a multiplier of 3.33 um, to take into account those that exist but aren't officially registered in the system. So looking at the trends, and I, I've looked at what's happened over recent years, most sheep breeds are stable or increasing in number, and that's a very, very positive thing, having talked about breeds that have disappeared altogether. The Castle Milk Murrit, which is one of our primitive breeds, Greyface Dartmoor and Teeswater, that you can hear about the Tees, um, they're doing really well. So that's great, because Teeswater were quite a problem once upon a time. 
Dorset Horn has gone up to category five. I know it sounds silly when the number's higher that you've gone up to it, but there we go. And Baldwin have gone down to category four. So there's movement each year. And it wasn't obvious on the uh, chart I showed you, but you also have this looking at those where the numbers are going up and the numbers are going down. And those are recognized and we look specifically to see what we can, we can do. Uh, the Longwood breeds, are having a prolonged downward trend. Now, long walls are lovely. I mean, they look cute, don't they? Big dreadlocks and all the rest. Um, so that's, you know, of some concern to us. And particular concern for Soe and Manx Lockton, which are backing the generally positive trend for, uh, for the primitive breeds, or the shorter, northern, North Atlantic short-tailed breeds. Okay, so here we go. This is how we're going. We're going from 2006 there up to 2018, 19, 1920 there. So a lot of them are going up, but the Manx and the Soe are coming down in numbers. So we've got to look at how we can get those numbers back up. There are two more <coughs> primitive breeds um, that don't feature on this chart, and that's because they have done so well, and that's the Hebridean and the Shetlands. There are so many of those, they now are classed very much as any other native breed, and they're really, really good news stories. But we've got to look out for this, because you probably can't read it, but you know, it's, that is a thousand. I mean, that is not many sheep, really. I'm currently trying to find a tuck for my Manx, and trying to find an unrelated one is a very difficult thing to do uh, with our numbers. I know it's breeding ewes, but number of tucks all relate to it in some way. Um, heading down towards a thousand and you don't want to have that inbreeding or sorts of genetic problems you can get if you do that um, but it's not all bad news um, Shropshire for you you liked Shropshire's earlier didn't you um, this was endangered in 1973 when RBST first set up there were only 420 ewes now there's more than 3,000 um, and so, you know, no longer are we needing to watch out for them. Uh, they graze beneath trees, as do quite a lot of sheep, to be fair, but, you know, they're very good in woodlands and so on. Um, and for that reason, you'll hear me talk later that many of our British breeds, native breeds, are good for conservation grazing. And that's in these days where we're interested in biodiversity and so on. That's a really good point. So why, do we, why are we interested in native breeds? Why can't we just import yet more Beltex and Texels and Charolais and all the rest? But our native breeds do have very good maternal qualities. Um, they've got good disease resistance. You may not think that because you'll always hear people saying, oh, sheep just want to die. I don't believe that at all. I don't know, we've got other farmers in here. You know, actually my sheep want to live, but sometimes it can't happen. Um, easy care traits, so for example, less susceptibility to foot rot. If you see a sheep limping, it may be foot rot, but it might be something far less troublesome like scold. And lamb vigour, I mean, my lambs are up and about within seconds virtually, um, you know, and they grow well and grow quickly. And certainly with some of our sheep breeds and the primitive breeds um, fall into that category, they're small sheep, but the lambs have small shoulders, so lambing is really, really easy for them. Um, and that means they come out not exhausted and ready to get on and live. Um, so, you know, one of the very good properties that we have with our sheep.
But there are ways and reasons for why sheep disappear. I'm just going to tell you this one story of the Herdwicks, that's having come from Cumbria, very important breed. You all remember foot and mouth in 2001. 10 million cattle and sheep were slaughtered. 10 million, can you imagine how many that is? And 44% of those cases were in Cumbria. Half of the farms in Cumbria's Northern Fells were affected. And up to 99% of all Herdwick sheep at that point were commercially farmed in Central and Western Cumbria. So when those numbers go, just imagine how the numbers of Herdwicks were decimated. Um, rough fell sheep, another of our, named, of our Cumbrian breeds, uh, they're in the south of the county, um, but they were also severely affected. And lots of problems with that, potential loss of the breed altogether. Um, but even if the breed wasn't lost, we have sheep, what we say are called hef hefted to the hill. Um, so they know where their area is because the Cumbrian fells just go on forever and up and down and up and down. And they have this inbuilt knowledge of where their area is because they're let loose on the fells, um, learnt from the mother, it you know, sort of goes down the line. And a lot of that was lost because there was nobody, no sheep with that inbuilt knowledge of where to go. So big, big problems we had. And Herdwicks could have disappeared, all but disappeared as a result of foot and mouth. Um, and now I just love seeing pictures of Herdwicks in Wales and Herdwicks on the south coast and Herdwicks all over the place because a disease outbreak is not going, hopefully will never affect the whole of the UK. It'll be concentrated in certain areas, so you've always got the chance of being able to hang on to some of the breeds. The gene bank I mentioned earlier, it's one of the activities that we do. So this Soe Ram, um, nice looking chap, isn't he? Um, but anyway, he produced a load of semen, isn't he good? <laughs> and produced 126 straws, and that's sort of the packaging and the way we define the amount. So that means if anything happens to that breed, that's 126 possibilities of producing the breed. So a really, really useful thing to do. And actually all but two of the breeds now have stored semen in the gene bank. The only two that don't are Bueller and Herdwick. I don't know the reasons for that, but I reckon out of all our breeds, that's not bad going. Um, that we have some way of trying to recreate the breed if anything were to happen. Um, so this is just showing you for all the different types of animals, but you know, you've got the straws from the rams. Um, say 28 breeds, this is obviously out of date. I got it from headquarters um, because it's nearly all of them now um, um, for the different animals. And that is one way of trying to ensure they're all stuck in a freezer, that if the worst were to happen, there's a chance of getting some of these breeds recreated. But that's not perfect. What you actually need is to have a frozen embryo because that will carry on with the mitochondrial DNA, which is affecting the brain and the muscle of the um, animals concerned. So there is a move now to start freezing embryos. Um, then with defrosting, stick it into a recipient U. Um, that's a 
you know, particularly good way of doing it. Um, there's one, yes, that's a pole dorset. Uh, and they're very, very good mums. So that way you wouldn't have to keep crossing, recrossing, recrossing. If you've only used the semen and you haven't got all the DNA in there, you've got to keep crossing and getting rid of the ones that aren't quite right to try and recreate the breed. If you've got the embryo, you've got the breed intact from day one. And because I'm biased, you know, yet another picture of a Manx, because um, Manx have just um, been added to the gene bank for that. But there's a very, there's only about six breeds so far, because it's still very much the early days of research. So we've got to see how all that goes, but potentially a really, really good way forward. Meat. Don't ever say, don't ever hear that, oh, you shouldn't eat them because you won't preserve them. You need to eat them to preserve them. And this is because of RRA won the best sausage. Uh, <laughs> national, uh, national, Jimmy's big banger. <laughs> there we go. But promoting a wider understanding so that all of you know about the breeds and why it's important. So here, it's been in the media, but we've had the native breeds. Um, in Green Park in front of Buckingham Palace and they went to Hampstead Heath this year as well. This I'm going to, sorry, but just talk very briefly about because it's a project I'm involved with where two weathers, are you all familiar with that term? It's a castrated male, so castrated at birth or very shortly after birth, um, put together from each of the North European short-tailed sheep breeds, primitives quicker, um, so that's two of my Manx, um, two Borrays that were brought to me that I took. And they've been brought up under identical conditions. And we're having a big launch in November. Um, they've been sheared. I've been dealing with the fleece. Um, and we'll be, we've got top chefs from around the place sort of doing a meat project. And that's all going to happen at the end of November so that we can really promote these breeds. Because, you know, go and buy some cheap lamb from the supermarket and it'll taste all right, have a really, really good native breed that's slower maturing, so you eat them at an older age, the meat is amazing. So looking forward to see how that is. Um, how to make them pay? Well, pay. <laughs> they don't, but they could. Um, the figures that Ruth Dalton gave me, she reckoned that you can get a clear profit of £130 per sheep. Um, because the meat is specialist, you can sell it for a higher price. If you get the right purchases for your fleece, then you can get a reasonable amount of wool. So it's not all loss, you can make a profit. Um, conservation grazing, um, just very briefly. We're all into conservation biodiversity, it's all in the media, it's the good thing to do. Well actually, our native breed sheep are perfect for this because they only eat what they want to eat as opposed to eating absolutely everything. So if you pick the right sheep, and again, the primitive breeds work well, then they will eat all the, sh the tough grasses, the things that are no good, the heathers <coughs> and so on. Um, in a, and then trampling in all the seeds so the wild flowers can come up, um, can be used very effectively in biodiversity. Um, fleeces and wool, well I think we've covered that a lot today. Um, collaboration with like-minded organisations, any small charity, medium-sized charity, you've got to be able to pal up with other things to get the word out there. So this just shows you the different ways uh, so breed societies, for example, for my particular breed, I have to register my sheep through RBST, through the combined flock book, done that way. 
And with DEFRA, um, I've registered my flock so that if there is a disease epidemic, unless it were to affect my sheep directly or in a smaller radius than normal, they would have some level of protection. So it's working together um, because with foot and mouth, there's huge big areas that were decimated um, just to try and protect the other sheep. So, you know, good ways of working forwards. So thank you for the whistle, <laughs> whistle stop tour of the Rare Breed Survival Trust. But, you know, there is a lot going on and a lot more that we can do. And, you know, with the support of all of you, just by loving the rare breed wool is a fantastic start because that will show that there's a worth for keeping it. So thank you. I um, think you'll all agree that it's fascinating to learn more about the work of the Rare Breed Survival Trust and um, a lot of those things that Al said about saving rare breeds, um, things that you will hear me say regularly as well. Um, I just think it's fascinating to know that, that there hasn't been an extinction since since the Rare Breed um, Survival Trust started in the 70s and um, all of the work that they're doing to safeguard the future of those breeds um, is, is just brilliant. So hats off to them. Um, thank you very much to Alice Underwood for allowing me to share her talk on the podcast and thank you very much to Judith Goodfellow who arranged that hands-on exploration day at her shop in Fine Fettle Fibres. Um, if you're interested uh, in the work of the Rare Breed Survival Trust you will find them at www.rbst.org.uk. You can find Alice's shop, uh, online shop, Sheepfold at www sheepfold.co.uk and you can find out about future events and check out the range of British wool that's in Judith's shop at www.finefettlefibres.uk That is about it for this episode although listen until the very end um, for a little bit more uh, from Esther Rutter if you want to pull out a fascinating wool fact uh, over your uh, upcoming uh, Christmas dinners. <laughs> the podcast will be back just before Christmas uh, with the final talk from that day at Fine Fettle Fibres, which was Zoe Fletcher, the woolist. And we will have our wool exploration with the Welsh Mountain Group. Until next time, take very good care. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Woolwork podcast. I was your host, Louise Scully. Music this episode is from David Mumford and can be found at Free Music Archive. You can follow me on Instagram at underscore Woolwork and why not join in with the Woolwork group on Ravelry too. Full show notes with images and links can be found by following the link in the show notes on your app. This California dude is just a little heavier than usual tonight. Really? Well, where I stand, the sun is shining all over the place.
fascinating wolf fact that you oh, learned. Oh, wolf fact. Um, oh, gosh. Something that uh, you could pull out at parties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, well, I think one of the ones I try out most often uh, is related to the knitting, the swimwear. Um, oh, yes. Uh, and is, well, one thing, obviously, wool can absorb uh, up to 35% of its own weight before it loses any of its insulating capacity. So it's actually, if you're out on a mountainside, wear wool. It will, could actually save your life. Yeah. Um, the And the other thing is that most of our all, our swimwear is still knitted. So this was a big kind of misconception that people didn't think they were wearing knitted swimwear anymore because it's machine knit and it's made from oh. man-made materials. But our swimwear is still knitted because there is nothing like it for absolutely mirroring the curve of your body. body. Exactly. How and so fascinating. Yeah, so that was another thing. It's like everyone kind of said like, oh, knitted swimwear. I was like, you are, you are already wear. If you wear swimwear at all, it will be knitted. Um, and the third thing uh, that I just kind of, <laughs> just kind of blew my mind when I found it was that the borders had this amazing uh, underwear knitting um, yes. bit, uh, kind of industry uh, for the best part of a century. And until the 1980s, all the wide fronts that were sold in Britain, France and Belgium, I believe, were made in the borders. So the, oh. one of the factories that had the patent for all... Um, all wife fronts which are knitted uh, <laughs> and, and so yeah like if yeah, not this, this isn't the case anymore no but for a period of that history like everything that was on a man's bum up and down the country <laughs> it's come from, from the borders, borders. Yeah, I love that get this out on the next podcast which will be next weekend oh my goodness if I have time okay to, to edit it well I'll try and um, not fuck it up then <laughs> <laughs> well the that's going on again the podcast <laughs> 